Hello, everybody. No jokes today. This is Bob Smith. Welcome to this special edition of the Outdated Wrestling Hour, where we take a close look at the Monarchs of Memphis Wrestling. I'm going to hit you with a slightly different mood today. I have to. I tuned into the WWE's Elimination Chamber the other night, and um, it was a fine card. But at the very beginning of the show, Peter Rosenberg, who I know from the Michael K. Radio Show in New York here, said that the pregame show there wouldn't be the same, wouldn't feel the same without Jerry Lawler there. Neither would professional wrestling. It's been a tough couple of weeks for anybody who's ever been a fan of Memphis wrestling because, first of all, as we all know, Jerry Lawler got very sick a couple of weeks ago. Some are reporting it as a stroke. Other people are reporting it as other things. I'm just going to say he's very sick and has been and is recovering right now as I record this episode on February 20th. I want to wish my friend Jerry Lawler the very best in this tr- troubled time right now. We need you, Jerry. We need your knowledge. We need your professionalism. We need what you've brought to professional wrestling to hang on just a little longer if you could do that for us. We can't let our legends go like this for a lot of reasons. We need the education, the knowledge of what real pro wrestling is about to hang around a lot longer. So hang in there, King. You are the real King. I was a Harley Race fan too, but to me, Jerry Lawler will always be the king of professional wrestling. And we got even worse news just a few days ago. The news that Jerry Jarrett, the longtime promoter in Memphis, Mid-South Coliseum, other arenas throughout the Mid-South, passed away. And I have to tell you right now that I consider the Memphis Channel 5 wrestling shows the greatest studio wrestling shows in wrestling history. They were on the longest. They achieved the most. They kept a federation going that was a regional territory long past the time regional territories were passe. The fans kept coming and coming and coming because of Jerry Jarrett, because of Jerry Lawler, because of those wonderful announcers. Dave Brown in the later years was preceded by the Vince Scully of wrestling announcers You know who I'm talking about. That friendly voice that would welcome you to your home, uh, talking directly to you as if he wasn't broadcasting, but speaking through the television lens as if he was talking directly to you. There was nobody like Lance Russell, nobody. Nobody at all. And, of course, you know, the great Dave Brown, the weatherman there, uh, newsman. Also, later years, we had Corey Macklin, who was fantastic, and Michael St. John, who was great. And I'm here to talk about my week in Memphis, meeting Jerry Jarrett, meeting, you know, again, Jerry Lawler, who I knew before that. 
but I wanted to come down and cover Memphis wrestling. I, I was burnt out working for PWI in 1991. I remember being really burnt out, but I wasn't burnt out on wrestling. So I decided to take some of my vacation time and have a wrestling vacation. So I flew to Memphis and I talked to Jerry Lawrence. I said, like, I'd like, just like to come down and, and cover your federation, see a couple of cards, and uh, you know, I'll fly back home. And he said, well, why don't you, get, you, know, why don't you come on TV? Come on uh, the Memphis Saturday morning show on Channel 5 and come on my talk show, which is on the next day. And I said, if you'd like, sure. So I agreed to do that. And we set up a, a silly angle where uh, he was in his monster phase at that point, and his main opponent was a leather face who looked just like Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I brought out a rare photo of Jerry with uh, his former manager, Sam Bass, and his former tag team partner, uh, Mr. White, there, and presented it to him on TV. Well, of course, Leatherface ran out and destroyed the photo and made a mess of the studio, cut up the uh, announcer's table, much to the chagrin of the announcers, of course. And Jerry eventually got a nightstick from a security guard and ran him off. And uh, once uh, Leatherface's chainsaw stopped working, which was a real great thing for everybody and it was a wild scene and i got to be a little part of that and i have to tell you that being such a fan of memphis wrestling as i was and by the way i did see it constantly at pwi we had the tape shipped to us every week i saw them i think about a week late from when they were originally broadcast but i did get to see the shows continually and I never missed a show. I mean, I watched everything. I watched Continental. I watched USWA at that point, which was Memphis, previously the CWA. AWA, various of all these IWCCW, which I also made a few appearances on. All those, indie, all those indies from around the country. Joe Pedicino had a tremendous wrestling block coming out of Atlanta where he had literally six to eight hours of wrestling every week. And we had somebody send us those tapes. And we, I literally studied those tapes Every single week, I watched them. Every moment of them, except the shows that I didn't need to watch, like the WWE B show and all that. So I didn't need to watch that one, but I needed to watch these independent federations. Of course, little federation out of Georgia. You know, Pedicino was based in Atlanta, where I discovered both Sid and Nick Busick. Um, helped give them a little push in print, anyway, because I thought they were great. And boy, I thought nothing was greater than Memphis wrestling. The flavor, like I say, Lance Russell or, or Dave Brown talking directly to you. They never insulted the intelligence of the wrestling fans. Neither did Jerry Lawler. I know for a fact that Jerry Lawler considered the Memphis wrestling community his friends. And they responded in kind. I got to tell you, in the early 90s, there was nothing I've ever seen like Jerry Lawler in Memphis. I would go driving around in my cheesy little rental car, discovering Memphis for the first time. And I'd see his face on a billboard. And I'd look in the newspaper, I'd see he was representing some company in an ad. He'd walk in, one day he walked in the hotel I was staying at to pick me up, and the place went bananas. Jerry, Jerry Lawler was the king of Memphis as well as the king of wrestling. There's no question about it. As beloved a figure as anybody you'd ever see. It was amazing. So anyway, while we were waiting to go on television that Saturday, he brought me into his home and showed me his Coca-Cola collection and his art and uh, all kinds of you know stuff to do with wrestling, some classical tapes. He showed me 
shape of George Goulas. I remember running, I remember laughing hysterically at that. We had a wonderful time, and I bid him adieu for a couple of days until it was the day of the card. We saw. I went to two cards. I went to one at the Pipkin Building. Uh, for some reason, the Mid South Coliseum in Memphis was not being used at that point, so they they moved their base of operations to something called the Pipkin Building, and uh, they had the main card there. And then we went into Mississippi for another show, which I got to see. And I got to tell you, that Pipkin card was amazing. Uh, Here's who, who was working for Memphis at this point. A very young Sabu. A very young Rob Van Dam. Wow. I saw a match while I was down in between Rob Van Dam, then known as Rob Stokowski. Anyway, that match, he was against Nightmare Danny Davis. I have to tell you, best opener I have ever seen or ever will see. It was fantastic. The Nightmare you know, took the Duke, but... I could see right from the beginning how great Rob Van Dam was going to be. And I went back to the office and I said, we got to cover this guy. we got to give him an introducing feature and everything else. So we did. I'm sure he doesn't remember any of this, but that's the way it went back then. And uh, that may have been the first time anybody ever heard of Rob Stokowski, soon to become Rob Van Dam. And Sabu flying all over the ring, you know, tremendous, tremendous guys. Everybody was so good to me when I was there, including those two. Really friendly, ready to open up and tell me about who they were and what their careers were. Discovered that Sebo was related to the Sheik. I was flabbergasted, just flabbergasted. Another guy from the area named uh, Judge Dredd, big guy. I think he was out of the Sheik school as well. He also was in Memphis at that point. And then I remember looking into the uh, dressing room area that they had at Channel 5 and opening the door. It was magic. It really was magic. There was Tojo Yamamoto. There was superstar Bill Dundee. Whoever did more with less than superstar Bill Dundee. A fantastic Hall of Fame talent, if there ever was one. And there's the dirty white boy, Tony Anthony, with the dirty white girl, Kimberly. And there's Dr. Tom Pritchard. There's somebody I knew from the East Coast, Chris Candido. And on the list went Doug Gilbert, Eddie Gilbert's brother, I don't want to leave anybody out, but right now I'm I'm just thinking back as hard as I can. I'm not using any notes. This is all from memory. And I was just amazed. I was in wrestling heaven. And then Jeff Jarrett walks up to me. He goes, we're going to give you some good Memphis wrestling today on the show. And I went, I can't wait. And that's exactly what it was. And, of course, booking at that point, along with Jerry Jarrett and whoever, Jerry and whoever else was doing it, was Eric Embry. Not given enough credit right now from wrestling historians for what he did both in Memphis and in the USWA in Texas. That was the last major thing I think ever at the Sportatorium was when he defeated P.Y. Chuhai. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. To win over an end world class, it, it, making it a USWA arena. Beat Skander Akbar and all that other stuff. A huge buildup to that. And they pretty much sold out the building for that. And Eric Embry knew his wrestling. He knew how to book. Another guy who got a lot with less. He wasn't a big muscle guy, you know, but he had a great anti-charisma. And I give Eric Embry nothing but total props. And then, of course, there was the king. 
in the main pick and building uh, card, he took on a very dastardly Dr. Tom Pritchard at this point. And it was a great main event. Really fantastic. You know, the king emerged victorious and uh, fans went bananas. In fact, they always went bananas whenever the king won a match. Those rapid fists, that old school uh, style that he had, throwing a drop kick on occasion. He could do it all. Just one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. But also, while I was there, of course, you know, I got to talk to Dave Brown and Michael St. John. I had a wonderful conversation. Why are you here? And I said, well, I love Memphis wrestling. I said, that's the only reason I'm here. I want to give you guys a push in the magazines. And I did. They also had a match where Eric Embry uh, shaved the head of Eddie Marlin. And there's something about Eddie I want to I want to talk about here because I find it to be fascinating. It shows you the love of wrestling all these people had. So he does this match and he gets his head shaved in the middle of the ring. I mean, he's like a cue ball when he leaves. You know, a little bit of stubble like Curly. And he leaves. And I there was an area where I could hang out, which was away from everything in the back. And I was keeping copious notes. This is what I did back then. When I went to cover a card, I would write everything down because you would have to refer to it when you flew home and, and write about it. So I'm sitting there playing with my notebook, and there's Eddie Marlin, and he goes, uh, well, did we fool him? As if I was one of them, which made me feel really good. In fact, most of the wrestlers and the people there knew who I was and knew what I was about. And I think I was professional up there in my trip to, to, you know, to gain the trust of, you know, how they were a kayfabe organization. I didn't want to look like a mark, <laughs> you know, and I don't think I did because I think the comment that Eddie made to me said volumes. Well, we fooled him. And I said, you sure did. And he said, Bob, it was great meeting you. I'm a little busy right now, but uh, safe home. And then he returned to the job he was doing after the card, which was stacking chairs. All right. Now here's a guy helping run the USWA, Eddie Marlin. And they all just pitch in. There he is stacking chairs in that arena. And I'm thinking, that's love, man. Not only did he perform in the ring and do all this backstage stuff, but here he was helping out stacking the chairs that they had to put into a back room after the car was done. I mean, that's that's love of game. That's love of craft. Doing a menial job along with some other helpers there. I mean, he wasn't complaining. He was, he was happy. He was smiling. He thought the show was great. And it was great. Promoted by Jerry Jarrett. You know, I, I could recant how he came to own the Memphis territory, took over for Nick Goulis and all that. But that's a that's a history for another thing. I just want to talk about the flavor that he left behind. You know, the flavor that Memphis wrestling had. And it was unlike any wild brawls and fantastic action. And they could get more, again, more with less. While the WWF and other federations would take their talent constantly, they developed their own talent. I mean, on the names go. We know about superstar Bill Dundee, who, who kind of stuck there for the most part. Then there were the Gilberts, Tommy and Eddie, of course, and, and later Doug. We all know Austin Idol was a star there. Randy Savage was a star there. Rick Rude really got a push there. And Lenny Poffo, the creation of the killer Lady killers, I should say, the fabulous ones, of course. Wayne Ferris, who later became the hockey talk man. The Rock was in Memphis, you know. He started there. Talked about Rob Van Dam and Cabo. Cactus Jack got a start there, and my buddy Chris Candido was there. 
Hulk Hogan took on Lawler, you know, and Lawler's championship reigns, all 8,000 of them, you know, he um, took on the best of the best. He took on Ric Flair. He took on Nick Bockwinkle. He, he took on Andy Kaufman, an angle that my friend Bill Apter helped set up. And was there ever anything better than the Kaufman Lawler feud? If you haven't seen I'm from Hollywood, the uh, biography of what happened there, by all means, try to get your hands on a copy of that. The real story. Most people who saw the David Letterman appearance thought that Jerry piledrived Andy Kaufman. And that was the end of the whole thing. And then the little appearance afterward on the Letterman show. Uh-uh. That thing went on for a long time afterward. Andy Kaufman was like an annoying fly in Memphis. He just wouldn't go away. And they did some great angles after that, right up to the point where he left. So try to check that out if you can. But again, Jerry Jarrett doing it and doing it right for the longest time. I mean, the stars just went on and on in Memphis. Terry Funk, Robert Fuller, Ronnie Garvin. It's, you know, young Brian Christopher. It's, it, it just goes on and on and on. It, the who's who of wrestling all passed through Memphis. And it was that flavor, the flavor that it was really important to get to the Mid-South Coliseum, wherever they were promoting, and in the states around it, too. Now, granted, not everything is perfect all the time. I know that Jerry Lawler had a predilection for monsters and monster heels. You know, there's a Frankenstein character and Leatherface and Tagar. Tagar used to shoot flame and had a little little sword that looks like it was made out of Reynolds wrap. I, I just, I I couldn't cotton to that stuff. But it would come and go. And they, they'd bring another tremendous heel. Dutch Mantel, how could I forget him? Fantastic in Memphis. Austin Idol. On and on the list goes. That was Memphis wrestling. It felt like a family. When I was there, it really did. I'm not, you know, Jerry, you know, talking to Jeff Jarrett. He's like, well, that's, that's Memphis wrestling for you. You're going to go write something about us. I said, you bet I am. And I, I got so much mileage out of the month that I spent there. You know, I set up some photographers or Bill Apter did actually, and we, we were well covered. And I, I, I left there so impressed with Mr. Jarrett. I spoke with one-on-one for about 15 minutes. And explain, here's what we're trying to do here, Bob. You know, we, we're against everything here. He says, we don't have the national television. We don't have a lot of things that, you know, the NWA and the WWF have. We rely on you guys to help get the word out about us. And I said to him, and I said, listen, I can't speak for my company. I couldn't speak for my company. You know what? Because the PWI deal back then in all of our sister magazines was Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan. They wanted Hulk Hogan on the covers first and foremost. Yes, some Ric Flair mixed in. Yes, some you know Magnum TA or whoever whoever the big stars with Luger, you know people like that. And they didn't do a whole lot of USWA covers. If they did, it was just a spot on the cover, not the main image. But I told him, I said, this is this is what we can do. I promise you that uh, I'm going to write a lot about what I've just seen and experienced, and uh, you can count on that. And we shook hands and. It was a nice, warm meeting with him. Everybody treated me great from from all those guys to Tojo Yamamoto to uh, the other guys that invited me to go out with him after one of the cars. But I, I was exhausted. I couldn't do it. But I was on the Channel 5 wrestling show. 
And the next day I was on Jerry Lawler's talk show. He used to have a talk show on the same station the next day. It was kind of a, a news entertainment show. He did a little bit of wrestling interviews on there, but he also talked about what was going on in, throughout the Mid-South and you know, county fairs coming up and air shows and things like that. An interesting show. He was Jerry was great on TV, as we all know. I mean, he could announce grass growing, and I think people would tune in. It was a great experience. I didn't want to go home. I swear to you, I didn't want to go home. That's some of the greatest wrestling I've ever seen. Not only what I experienced at my PWI years, but I'm digging up tapes and watching some of the classic encounters. I mean, Joe LaDuke versus Jerry Lawler, uh, the Poffos, Randy and Randy and Lanny against uh, Rock and Roll Express, and Randy Savage versus uh, Lawler. Lawler versus Bachwinkle, my God. Lawler versus Kurt Hennig. And beating Hennig for the AWA world title. And he went around proclaiming himself the unified world champion because he was also the USWA champion at that point. Of course, he did it after the uh, AWA took the belt back, or at least the title designation back after a contract dispute. But so what? Memphis was Memphis. They had their own way of doing things. And frankly, I miss that flavor. I miss studio wrestling. I miss the excitement. And those fans, I met so many fans there. Hey, man, I saw you on TV. I said, yeah, I was on TV. It's amazing. You get to know Jerry Lawler. That's awesome. I said, well, yeah. I said, you know, it's as fun as it gets. The warmest, nicest people. I'll never forget, as a New Yorker, I, I parked my little rental car near a drugstore. I had to go get some provisions as I was walking. You know, as I was just arriving in Memphis, and I had to go to my hotel. And this lovely lady who's walking in front of the in front of the uh, drugstore. She goes, how you doing? I was like, hi. And then I realized after a few hours of meeting some other people, everybody I walked by said, how are you? How you doing? It certainly wasn't New York city where they growl at you as you walk by, you know, but those are my memories and me memories of Memphis. And I, I got to come to Memphis and be on the show one more time, although I wasn't on camera. Uh, a couple of years later, my band performed at the BB King nightclub in Memphis. Uh, I was opening for Coco Taylor in one of my great moments as a blues artist because Coco, nobody better than the sweet Coco Taylor, wonderful woman. And I, I went and saw Mr. Lawler and uh, talked to him and just, just to say hi, you know, just to say hello, invited him to the show and he didn't show up, but he had things to do. But um, I got to see a card there with uh, Jake the Snake Roberts not showing up and he had to replace him with Sid Vicious, who took the USWA title from Lawler because they didn't want the fans to go away unsatisfied. And you know what? Those guys cared about the fans. They really did. They spoke in the highest glowing terms about the people who spent their hard-earned money to come and buy tickets. I respected the heck out of them for that. You know, did we give them a good show? Did we get it's all I hear. It's all I heard. clearing my throat here. I love Memphis wrestling. And Jerry Jarrett was a fantastic promoter. I know he went on to form one of the people that formed TNA. Uh, 
did some other things too in the front offices of the other federations and helped out where he could after he decided not to promote anymore. But I wish he never had decided not to promote anymore. Memphis wrestling had a flavor and feel unlike anything I've ever experienced, both just watching it on television and actually being there to experience the heat in the crowds was real and it was always there. Yet it had a friendly vibe to it with the people involved. Dave Brown, Lance Russell, two of the best ever, ever. If you've never seen them in action, people forget that Lance was part of the NWA team, but, some of the greatest announcing ever really was. And of course, Jerry Lawler went on to become one of the greatest announcers ever. When he went and joined the WWF, I was there for his debut show when he decided to come full time to the WWF against, and I saw him at Madison square garden debut against Tito Santana. And they despised him from the minute he walked through the curtain. And it was awesome. Lawler still had it when he went to the WWF and he had that great feud with Bret Hart. Wow. Star is a star, right? So I, I just wanted to give you these memories I had. And I'm feeling heartsick right now. I don't care what people think of me. It's a it's an odd way to put things. Maybe it's not very macho or very masculine. I don't care. I miss old school wrestling. I miss the feeling of having to be there or wanting to go to Memphis or as a kid doing everything I can to spend what little money I had on wrestling tickets. Cause I, I didn't grow up rich, you know, I was from a small town and had to travel to go see wrestling. And how am I going to get there? You know? And that feeling has never really left me until recently when things got so blown up and overly promoted and big, big, big. I mean, you watch a WWF show with the staging and the lighting and the, the angles and, you know, everything is big. AEW is big. I miss smaller. I miss the days where you could get heat just from showing up and walking through the curtains. I miss the feeling that the stars were larger than life, but I guess that's just aging. Everything changes. Everything develops. Everything moves along with the passage of time. I want to sit here and wish Jerry Lawler a complete, recovery from his illness and those around him who love him. I, I hope that you'll take care of him and bring him back to us, man. We need him. We need his knowledge. We need his craftsmanship. We need his voice. We need him to continue to teach the younger stars what real wrestling is all about. Cause we're losing those people. We're losing them fast. seems like every day, another legendary wrestler leaves us and we need those voices of the past to guide wrestling to the future. We really do. So for purely selfish reasons, I say to Jerry Lawler, see you soon, buddy. Want to see you soon. And as for Jerry Jarrett, thank you. Thank you for the thrills. Thank you for the excitement. Thank you for everything, man. Thank you all. Thank, thank you, Jeff Jarrett. Thank you, Superstar Bill Dundee. Thank you. Mr. Coffee, the attendant at the Memphis Arena. Thank you all. So I want to thank you for checking out this special edition of the Outdated Wrestling Hour. It's a different mood, but I promise you, Friday, 
We're back with a great, fun show. We're going to have Terry Sullivan as our guest, the great announcer from Big Time Wrestling and Bruiser Bedlam. And we're going to go and talk about the revival of a federation like I've never seen. It was fantastic. We're going to tell you some stuff you might not know about, so please tune in on Friday. Um, this is the Outdated Wrestling Hour. I'm your host, Bob Smith, also your executive producer. Our opening and closing theme is Boogie Party by Kevin McLeod, um, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Also, please contact us. Um, we're all over the place. Find me on Twitter at BobSmithNYC. Write to us at outdatedwrestling at gmail.com. That's outdatedwrestling at gmail.com. And uh, we want to hear from you. We want to hear anything good, bad, and sideways. Please subscribe to us from your favorite podcast app. And also uh, write us a review anywhere that reviews are available. Uh, we would appreciate that, too. Good or bad, we want to hear from you. We really do. So anyway, we will see you Friday with the next edition of the Outdated Wrestling Hour. Thank you all so very much. Take good care of yourselves. for something fun to do with your family get together for a fun and exciting time bowling at Harold Lane's in New Hyde Park New York Harold Lane's brings back the nostalgic atmosphere of bowling along with its fantastic cafe and bar selections the food is not your typical bowling alley offerings take it from me that's the truth the food is delicious Harold Lane's also offers adult and junior leagues as well as coaching classes for the kids the kids birthday parties Fundraisers and adult parties are always a huge hit. Reasonably priced and conveniently located at 465 Herricks Road in New Hyde Park, New York, Harold Lanes is open seven days a week, 10 a.m. to midnight. You need more information? Give them a call at 516-741-8022. That's 516-741-8022 for Harold Lanes in New Hyde Park, New York.